Well, this morning, if you would uh, open your Bible to John 14, I, I really, just our time, it's the Lord's table, it's a bit abbreviated, and I really just want to deal with one thought as we prepare for the Lord's table. It's in the flow of our exposition, and it's a statement that our Lord Jesus Christ made. It is a wonderful statement, and it's in John 14, 27. And it's something that he leaves the disciples with. You've heard it before if you've been around truth and in the life of the church and around the scripture. But he said this in 1427. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. There's our thought, just maybe a word, is the word that Jesus gives there, peace. Peace. I mean, peace is a word certainly that all would desire, but maybe few experience. Will Durant, who was a famous historian, said that in the last 3,500 years, there has been less than 300 years that could be called peace in the world. Out of 3,500, maybe just 300 have been without some kind of war. Someone has said that there have been over 8,000 peace treaties that have been brokered and broken. They can make them, but then they break. 14,000 wars have been fought and it has resulted in 4 billion deaths. I mean, we live in a world that is in desperate need of peace. In fact, one historian defined peace in the world as the lull in the battle when everybody stops to reload. On a national level, certainly we are a very troubled society. I think you would agree with me that it's hard sometimes to watch the news. Sometimes it's actually easier not to watch the news. There was a bank shooting again this week. There was a recent murder and a kidnapping that caught the media amazingly. I mean, peace, you would agree, is an elusive commodity. Untold billions of dollars are spent annually in search of peace. Diplomats fly all over the globe pursuing peace. Court systems are jammed with cases from a breakdown of peace, both with individuals and certainly in corporations. Some of you of business owners understand that and deal with that on a weekly basis. I mean, did you know, Grace Church of the Valley, that two million Americans are in prison? That is the highest incarceration rate on the planet. Two million Americans. And what's crazy about that is we have everything in this country, right? But somehow, even in this country, highest incarceration rate in the globe. St. Louis has the highest murder rate of nearly 50 murders for every 100,000 residents. Sadly, there are mass murders like the 58 killed not too long ago in Vegas. 17 were shot in a Florida high school and it continues often. We live in the daily threat of terrorism in the world. The family, in, to say the least, is disintegrating. Divorce is rampant. I was told this week that at one school, they're to respond according to their student, and they give their student 15 genders to pick from. That's at kindergarten, by the way. And I believe that is in California. It's hard to speak of the decision made in New York this week that allows abortion 
up to the due date. I mean, I, it, it just, it's hard to even say that. Boy, that's a great decision, isn't it? You can murder a baby up to the due date or right before its due date if the mother is in any way harmed. I mean, I don't think I have to tell you, and I'll stop there, that we live in a fallen, broken world. And there are people searching for peace in your backyard, in your neighborhood, in this community, in this state, in this globe through drugs. Some people seek it through entertainment. Just if you can just get a little bit more, so let's rev it all up. Shopping. Some people find peace through recreation, sports. I suppose that none of those things is bad solely in themselves. Maybe that's why the song was written and made popular a number of years ago by a man by the name of Bobby McFerrin. You know it. At least the older ones would. Don't worry. Be what? Happy. 31 years ago, he wrote that what we can call a one-hit wonder. I think it was 1988. And in the midst, beloved, of a chaotic world and a chaotic time, Jesus says to us, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Now, what is that peace? Maybe just a little background study on the word peace will help us answer that question. What is Jesus talking about here in 1427? Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give unto you. Well, in the Old Testament, of course, that's our desire. We don't need some psychologist, though you may be one, to tell us about the soul. The Scripture tells us about the soul, and the Scripture tells us about peace. Jesus spoke of peace. This is the God-breathed Scripture. Well, very well, what is it? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew term for it. I think you know that Hebrew term. It's the term for peace. It's the Hebrew term what? Shalom. That is a greeting, that is a farewell. I was in Israel not too long ago and heard that phrase hundreds of times. That term shalom is used in the Old Testament 250 times. And it's a very common word even for Jewish people today. It's a greeting, it's a farewell, it's a greeting for prosperity in every relationship, in every circumstance. And it really goes way beyond just a greeting and just a farewell. But the world defines peace usually, usually in a series of negatives. In other words, they would say that peace is to live stress-free. That peace is to live without trouble. That peace is to live without conflict. But really, it, they would say it's the absence, the world would say, of war. It's the absence of conflict. It's the absence of unrest. It's the absence of maybe that word anxiety. But that's really not biblical peace. Biblical peace, shalom, and right here in 1427, when Jesus said peace, he uses the Greek term in the New Testament, of course, Irene, which we get our feminine word Irene from. Irene means peace. But there, those texts, Shalom and Irene, speaks this. It's a number of things, but predominantly, it is a soul at rest is what peace is. It's a soul at rest. In fact, in the Old Testament, peace was a characteristic of the coming kingdom and the Messiah, that he would bring peace on earth. And one day at a second coming, that will be true. But one of the most complete definitions of peace found in all of the Bible is found right here in John 14, 27. Jesus gives you his peace. It is a wonderful statement. It is a thrilling statement. It is a a beautiful statement, and I think one that will lead us directly into the Lord's table this morning as you remember his death. Now, you remember, just as we step back into the context here, that at the very moment that our Lord spoke peace, we would agree that he is at the most disturbing time in all of his life, I would think. 
It could be the most disturbing night that he ever had in 33 years. It is Thursday night. It is the Passion Week. It is his upper room discourse. His cross, his trial is coming just in a matter of a few hours. And he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be killed. He's going to be crucified. And as he kept telling the disciples that he's going away, they are deeply troubled. Look back at 14.1. It's why he opens this chapter. Let not your hearts be troubled. They are troubled. They are perplexed. They are discouraged. They are despondent. I mean, they are deeply troubled. And so what our Lord does is he delivers in chapter 14, at least at verse 15 forward, five blessings that come to believers because of his departure of the Father. Now he's been speaking about these blessings. He says, if I go, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to die and I'm going to prepare a place for you. He delivers those great statements in 14.6, the I am statements, the way, the truth, and the life. He begins to tell them that he and the Father are one in essence and one in purpose. He tells them that they will do greater things. He gives us an outlet in prayer. But then beginning at 4.15, he gave them first the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the blessing of the Son. Thirdly, he gave them the blessing of the Father. All of the triune God is at work. And then last week, the blessing of Scripture that he would remind the disciples of the truth of the word of God. And so this morning, that fifth blessing, it is the blessing of peace. Now, this is a supernatural peace. And he is leaving you with a treasure. And so what I want to do is just look at three characteristics of that supernatural peace that should give you hope this morning in the face of a difficult world in which we live in. Let me tell you where I'm going to go in the scripture. He says, first, peace is given objectively. In other words, I'm going to give you peace, and he gives that peace objectively. Secondly, that peace that he gives is to be experienced subjectively. So he gives it objectively, but it's not just a statement of fact, though that's awesome. It is to be subjectively experienced. And then thirdly, peace is to be pursued relationally. Okay? Let's look at that as we turn our attention to the word and then prepare for communion. First, peace is given objectively. It's given objectively. Look at the statement again in the word. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So here he not only gives, if you will, the Spirit, he gives the Father, he gives himself, I'm coming to you, he gives the apostles the scripture, but he gives you here this peace and he gives it to you objectively. If, if you're familiar with that term, it is his last will and statement. It's as though he gave to you and gave to these disciples on that Thursday night. He bequeathed you something. To bequeath something is to pass something on. To bequeath something is sometimes even bound up in a will. And what he bequeathed you with is not necessarily things in this world, though we have those blessings, but he bequeaths you something far more precious, and it's the quality of peace. Now, peace biblically is often mentioned with grace. How many times in reading through the New Testament does Paul greet you with grace and what? Peace. Peace, really like grace, is undeserved favor given to you. Peace is really the result or the fruit of grace. It is the companion of grace. You say, but Scott, what is it more specifically? I mean, some again would say it's the peace of a hassle-free environment at home or work. It's the peace of a comfortable surrounding where tranquility resides. It's a getaway somewhere. It's a retreat to the beach. I suppose it could be that, but it is far more. What is Jesus talking about? Well, biblically, 
here, peace, is born out of that term called reconciliation, where you have two parties that are at war that need to be reconciled. Biblical peace, you can write this one down, is a soul at rest with God. Okay? It's a soul at peace with God. What biblical peace is, and it can't be only confined to this, but predominantly, it's the blessing of a right relationship with God. In fact, peace, biblical peace, always starts with a personal relationship with God. And here I've said in this opening main head that it's given objectively in salvation. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? Well, look in your Bible over to the book of Romans for a moment, okay? Look over to the book of Romans, and that would be Romans chapter 5. Let me turn you there, because there's a statement there that I think will help you understand this. Paul gets done here speaking of the faith of Abraham and the justification by faith at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. And then he makes this wonderful statement in 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if there is no peace with God, then there's no tr true peace in life. Romans 5.1, maybe we could say at least as a starting point, that if you're in Christ this morning and as we come to the Lord's table, if you've been justified by faith, you have an important feature, peace with God. That's where it begins. It begins at salvation which ought to be a little bit of a clue for us. Peace isn't something that the world can give. In fact, Jesus is saying, I give you this peace not as the world gives to you. Peace is something beyond that. Peace is a relationship. Peace is reconciliation. Peace here is to be justified by faith. And it says there that we have peace with God. I mean, the simple truth, beloved, is this is that before salvation, we were not at peace with God. We were at what? War with God. In fact, look down in chapter 5 of Romans, what it says there. For while we were still weak. In other words, it wasn't in us. We were weak. Look down at Romans chapter 5, 8. But God shows us love for us in that while we were still sinners. So we're still weak. We're still sinners. Look down in verse 10 of chapter 5. For if while we were enemies. It is a, quite a description here of what we were. It is an ugly cluster of words. We were weak. Another translation says we were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies of God. In fact, if you're there in Romans 5, just look back a page at Romans chapter 3. There he begins to outline the depravity of our sin. Where it says in Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have been become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their tongues. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And now this, and the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. And I think that was the mayor's decision this week in New York. To license murder... Well, it says there, the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, it's quite a statement here. I mean, the Bible we know that it says, and Steve Lawson mentioned it a few weeks back, that God is angry with the wicked, what? Every day. Sin separates you from God. Sin that you committed, sin that I committed, will send you Straight to hell. You say, well, pastor, why is that? Well, the answer would be because God is 
holy. That's why. He is so holy. He is so pure. And his holiness demands justice. And it demands the penalty for that sin. And that sin is death. We will die apart from God. When you were born, you were not born into righteousness. You were born into sin. You were conceived in sin. You were a sinner by conception. You are a sinner by choice. And when you enter into this world, far from being at peace with God, you are at war with God. In fact, Paul put it this way in Colossians 1.21. He said there that we were alienated from God. He says in 121 of Colossians that we were hostile in mind. In other words, we were raging and angry in our mind. We were engaged, Paul said, in evil deeds. Paul would say of our relationship prior to Christ that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans says there's not none righteous, no, not one. Born sinners, bound in rebellion against God. And as I mentioned, sinners by conception and sinners by choice. Paul said in Romans 3, all of us fall short of of God's glory, right? So here, upon entering this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you are no longer at war with God. You are no longer at enmity with God. You are no longer a child of wrath. Having been justified by faith, you now have peace with God. You are no longer bound to darkness. You are no longer enslaved to the devil. You are no longer set for a future that will doom you, that will destroy you, that will defeat you. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of God being at war with us, God is now for us. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 6.15, speaks of the gospel. And there, as he's telling us to put the armor of God on, he calls the gospel the gospel of peace. In other words, it brings peace with God. You say, well, how did that take place? Well, if you see it there in Romans 5.1, it's a great term. We should preach on this, and I believe I do every year is you, it says there, the end result is you have peace with God, but you've been justified by faith. To be justified is to be legally declared righteous in the sight of God. You who were at war with God, you who were at enmity with God, you who were hostile, engaged, and alienated, and doomed, and found, and bound up in darkness, and the Satan's... Minions, if you will, he caught you in the world, but here he justified you. Then an almighty God, with, if you look at it from a legal court system, he declared you righteous. He didn't do that based on your merit. He didn't do that based on your deeds. He didn't do that based on your religion. Actually, Paul says in Romans 3.24, he justified you as a gift, And when he justified you, he changed your status from being under the kingdom of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of light and his dear son. You say, well, Scott, what transacts, what's the transaction of justification? And I just don't know if we could ever say this enough, but two things always happen in that declaration. Number one, God does something negative. Number two, he does something positive. Negatively, what God does is he removes all your sin. So when you were justified by faith, there's the channel upon which you come to Christ. You cry out to him, but when you were justified, he removed your sin. He took your sin. He buried into the deepest part of the sea. He wiped out your sin like a thick cloud. He took all those sins and all those decrees of sin that you committed against him and he removed your sin. He completely pushed it out and he did that by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ so that when you come to faith in Christ, you become justified. God, if you will, has a gavel and he he pushes that gavel down and he declares you righteous in his sight. He removes all your sin, but then he has to do something positively. 
He positively, as you come to faith in Christ, puts the righteousness of Christ into your life. He looks at the righteous 33 years of the Lord Jesus Christ who had never sinned, who had never committed a crime, who was not conceived in sin. He was born of the Virgin Mary and he lived an absolutely righteous life and God Almighty not only removes your sin, but he puts into your bank account the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you're no longer at war with God. You now have peace with God. Isn't that a great truth? Listen, if you're here this morning, you have peace with God. You can talk a lot about what you want about personal peace, but if you have a right relationship with God, you have peace with God. And let me just make this clear to you. When you think about justified, being justified by faith, I just want you to know you're passive in that. God causes you to be born again. God gives you justification as a gift. He gives you faith as a gift. You come into Christ through the miracle of regeneration and being born again. And in that moment, he removes all your sin. Listen, we ought to be the happiest people in all of the San Joaquin Valley, right? I mean, you come in today and as we take the Lord's table, listen, you may not be what you want to be. You may not be what you should be. You may not be what you could be. But I do know this. If you have the Lord Jesus Christ, amen, you have peace with God. You say, well, Scott, how is that peace made possible? I mean, he removes my sin, but he he, he adds the righteousness of Christ. How did he make that possible? Let me just show you. Look over in the book of Ephesians just for a moment. Look at the book of Ephesians. Paul will very clearly tell you there how that peace is made possible. He'll say it in Romans as well. But in Ephesians 2.13... He says, and I love the language there. I love this language. Paul preaching the gospel there by grace through faith in 2, 1 through 10, but said this in 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once or once were far off have been brought near by the what? By the blood of Christ. In other words, it's made possible by his cross. Look at 2.14. For he himself, there's our word, is our peace who has been who has been made us, or has made us both one and has broken down the flesh of the dividing wall of the hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making what? Peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. I think peace to those who were far off, the Gentiles. Peace to those who were near, the Jewish people. But he made that peace possible by way of the cross. So here when Jesus says, I'm bequeathing to you... Maybe we don't use that word. I'm writing you my last will and testament. I'm giving you something. I'm granting to you this. And he blesses us, not only with the scriptures and the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but he blesses us with his peace that he would accomplish within the next 12 hours by being lifted up on the cross for us. And so through his substitutionary death, through the imputation of his righteousness to sinners, enemies are now at peace with God. In fact, Paul said very clearly in Romans 5.10, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son. So in just a moment, when we pass these elements, that's where peace begins. Maybe it's enough for me to say peace is just given objectively. He gives that to you. He bequeaths that to you. He he put that and gave that to your account. It's one of the blessings of being a Christian. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Look over just for a moment in Colossians, just over at the next couple of books thereafter, Ephesians. In Colossians chapter 1, 
It's very much the same. He's there talking about the greatness and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. How in 115, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. You say, well, he wasn't born first in his incarnation. No, it just means of all those who have been born, at least took on humanity, he was the preeminent one. For by him in 116, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so naturally in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is the son of God. This is very God, if you will. This is the one who was at the beginning, who created all of the world. It says in 119, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, but watch this. And in 120, and through him to reconcile two warring parties to himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, how Paul? By the blood of his cross. In other words, he died on your behalf and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. There you have it. He reconciled you. You now have peace with God, but that peace has been wrought here through his death. We who once, Paul said, had a mind in Romans 8 set on the flesh and it resulted in death. He said, now have a mind set on the spirit and it results in life and peace. Listen, beloved, let me just say this. The reason people lack peace And you don't have to be a brilliant PhD to understand this. The reason people lack peace is not circumstantial. It's not financial. It's not psychological. It's spiritual, right? Peace begins with this relationship. And peace with God is needed. And maybe enough for me just to pause right here. Do you have the peace of God this morning? Can you confidently say that if you were to die this day and stand before God, that you have the peace with God? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Listen, if you have put your hope and trust justified by faith, you say, well, Scott, why is it by faith? That's the channel, I call it. You say, well, then the faith is yours. I'm justified by my faith. No, faith is simply the channel. Faith is simply a gift of God. Faith is something God gives you. Repentance is something God gives you. And when you begin to see the immeasurable greatness of your own sin and you experience the separation from God and you get down on your knees and beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, you begin at that point to look up to the cross of Christ because you know he's the only answer. So the faith you have isn't the faith you express. Faith you have, according to Ephesians 2, is a gift. And when you trust and that channel comes to you looking away from yourself, looking to the Savior, he gives you that gift. And let me say, once he gives you that gift, this is what's unbelievable. You are eternally secure. He holds on to you and will never let go of you. Jesus said, no one will snatch you out of my what? Hand. He also said, my father, no one will snatch you out of his hand. So you are eternally secure. I mean, how would it be, and maybe some of you, to walk around daily like I used to as a teenager, not having that security? Am I in or am I out? Am I one of his or am I not one of his? Well, Scott, you're kind of a Christian because you're listening to MacArthur preaching on the book of Romans as a young teenager. But then on the other hand, I'm not really a Christian because I haven't submitted my life to him. And I was in one day and out the next day until God broke through my heart and showed me that I needed to trust the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And in that moment when I dropped down on my knees, he not only took all my sin away, but he gave me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here in the midst of this 
upper room discourse, Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave you my peace. I'm going to go die on the cross. I'm going to obey my Father, and I'm going to bequeath to you. I'm going to write my last will and testament, and I'm giving it to you objectively, and it's his peace. And he did so by virtue of his death on the cross that leads us into the thought of communion. But secondly, let me say this, peace is subjectively or experienced subjectively. In fact, look at the text again. Go back to John. He, he says there in John 14, 27, my peace I leave with you. He's leaving them and us with his peace. My peace I give to you, but he says not as the world gives to you. In other words, objective peace is peace with God. It's a stated reality. It's secure, but there's more here. You say, well, what's more? Well, he not only gives you the peace with God, but he gives you this subjectively to be experienced. He gives you the peace of God, okay? In other words, you experience that. It's not as the world gives. The world gives, I could call it fake peace. It doesn't give real peace. It doesn't give true peace. And until Jesus comes, there's not going to be peace. A few months back, I was in Israel just for a few days, and we thought that we were watching a lightning storm at our hotel off into the evening. And we found out and we recognized that wasn't a lightning storm. That was 180 missiles being sent from the Gaza Strip over into the land of Israel. That what we saw was not from the weather. It was from 180 missiles being launched in one minute. And if you've ever been there, you know that there's no peace. Treaties made, treaties broken. And it happens all the time. And so we knew the next day there would be a reprisal. And there was, of course, swiftly and completely in that. But here, he says, I'm going to give you my peace. But he says, I'm not going to give you it like the world. The world's peace is temporary. It's fleeting. It's materialistic. It's fake romance. It's substance abuse. It's a revenge culture. It's all an illusion. In fact, it says, does the writer in Isaiah, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for they cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There's no peace. So Jesus said, I'm going to give you my peace, but it's not like the world. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet said, they have healed the wound of my people, lightly saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. But here, we experience peace by God, not only objectively, but we experience peace with God subjectively even now. In fact, Biblical peace, beloved, is independent of your circumstance. It's independent of your trial. It's independent of, of health itself. It's the peace that no sorrow can dampen. It's the peace that results in no danger or the thought of death or suffering that any of those can actually take away. This peace is the assurance of a sovereignty. It's the assurance that all things work together for our good. It's experienced personally. It's experienced intimately. It comes to the mind and then it moves to the heart. This is the peace that God gives in the loss of a child at the gravesite. Some of you have experienced that. And I've had to stand before those in the last 30 years, and I've seen mom and dad in the greatest of anguish and the greatest of sorrow filled with a peace that surpasses understanding. This is biblical peace. It's when you have financially nothing and you have the peace of God. When you may lose your job and you experience his control. When your boss goes berserk on you for no apparent reason. Maybe when your coach drives you nuts. Maybe when you feel the loneliness of a lost loved one in these last years. When there's in-law issues. When there's a daughter and a son in rebellion. When cancer hits your family or it hits someone that you love or some health issue. See, this peace 
is beyond those things. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, in me you may have peace. Now here's some of the scriptures that fill that out. Paul says this in Romans 15, 13, may the God of peace fill you with all joy and peace in believing. He wants you to be at peace this morning so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so he gives it objectively, but it's subjectively experienced. Paul would say in Romans 14, 7, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This peace is to be experienced now, and maybe as we come to the Lord's table in a moment, you need to reflect on that. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, I like this phrase. It says, may the Lord of peace, and I like that because God is the God of peace. The Lord is the Lord of peace. And it says there, himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. In other words, he this morning wants you to subjectively experience that peace. In fact, I think you know that one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, and what? Peace. The Spirit creates that peace. When you're walking in the Spirit, not carrying out the deeds of the flesh, not only is He the God of peace, not only is Jesus the Lord of peace, but the Holy Spirit imparts to the believer as he's filled with the Spirit or she is filled with the Spirit that fruit and that quality of peace. All the Trinity, if you will, gives us peace. And I guess I want to say this. He gives you this is hard to say, his peace. In other words, the peace that guarded him at this hour, trusting in the sovereignty of God, is the peace that he gives you. He gives you peace for every circumstance. He gives you peace for every loss. He gives you peace for every difficulty. He gives you and fills you with his peace. Can I show you an example of that? Look over to the book of Philippians. You say, well, Scott, how does this work? Look over to Philippians just for a moment. And I think you know this text, but let me just draw your eyes to it. Philippians chapter 4, where it tells us in 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We're to Rejoice in his presence always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now watch this. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And now this in verse 7. And the peace of God. I love that. Which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a great promise. The great antidote to a lack of peace and anxiety is prayer. That he's in control. That he's sovereign. That he loves you. And so God promises peace through prayer in trial. He promises a peace here in 4-7 that is almost humanly unexplainable. It is a peace internally. It's guarding your heart. It's guarding your mind. It's transcending understanding. And it will guard you against anxiety that we are so often prone to. So peace, if you will, triumphs over trials. It turns sorrow into joy. It turns a spirit of fear into boldness. It puts doubt into confidence as we come to Jesus in a place of prayer. In fact, don't forget Philippians 4.9. Look at it. In fact, you can say he guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable in 4.8, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of what? 
peace will be with you. Subjectively experienced. I heard this week, sadly, of a, of a pastor, another pastor that had taken his own life. Don't know all the situation, know the church, know the teaching pastor at that church. But he took his, his own life. And I don't know what could happen into the struggle of the human mind to get to that point. But I, I just want to remind you that you, if you're in Christ, have been given the peace with God. You have subjectively been given his peace to experience that in your own heart. And here it says in Philippians 4.9, it says, And the peace of God or the God of peace will be with you, but you put your mind focused on those things. So it's given objectively, it's experienced subjectively, and thirdly and finally, just a final thought to build it out theologically, peace is to be pursued relationally. It's to be pursued relationally, okay? You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you have to pursue it. You say, but Scott, I thought that it was given to me. It is. You thought, you might say, I'm given it subjectively at times in my heart. Yes, you are. But thirdly, you have to pursue it. Peace is not automatic. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, look again at the text. Come back in John 14. Let me show you. It's right there. It's a third principle here. He said there in 1427, he had to exhort him and command him again. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then this command. Let not your hearts be, what? Troubled. Neither let them be, what? Afraid. And that word for afraid there, it's interesting. It's the only place in all the New Testament I believe that it's used, and it's literally, we have a fray, but maybe this gives you a little better idea. You can't be a coward, is what the word means, is the thought. Afraid's a good word, but he, remember he said in 14.1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, and it's a command. He includes it in 14.27, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, I'm saying it to you again. Don't let your heart even this morning be troubled and don't be afraid. You say, by what? By the circumstance, by the surrounding, by the trial. Obviously, they're losing their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, I'm going, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to dispatch the Father to you. The Father's going to love you. I'm going to come to you in my resurrection to the 11. And I'm going to manifest myself to you in a far greater way through the power of the Word of God. And then I'm going to give you the scriptures that will give you peace. And now he's going to say, I'm going to give you the peace that he gives and testifies to you and hands out to you. But you have to pursue peace. You have to pursue it relationally. In other words, you say, well, Scott, how is that so? Well, it's like everything else. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. But you have an opportunity to walk in the Spirit. He gives you the Holy Spirit, but you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He gave you his word, but you've got to read the word. He gives you objective peace, but you have to pursue it relationally. In fact, let me say this, that the peace with God is the foundation of peace within ourselves and peace with every other person. And I'm just thinking of these scriptures. They might come up on the screen. I'm going to hit them fast. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In other words, you could be here this morning and have no peace and you're a believer. You need to let, that's another command, so that, that the peace of Christ that he gives rule and umpire your heart to think correctly. In fact, it says this in Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Say, so, well, I don't have peace. Well, you need to make every effort to live in peace with all men. All men. And I would pray if the Lord pricks your heart on that, you might need to get to somebody today. In fact, we're going to take communion. It might even be better to not take communion and give five minutes if you need to go pursue somebody in this flock. I'm unaware of that. But he says to you to make every effort. Are you making every effort to live in peace with all men? In fact, Mark 9.50, it says, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace 
with one another. Be at peace with one another. Romans 14, 9 says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. I hope that you're pursuing for what makes for peace. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, live in peace. In other words, live it. And the, and the God of love and peace will be with you. I love Ephesians 4, 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You don't create the peace. God created the peace through the Lord Jesus Christ by his death on the cross. But you're exhorted to maintain the unity of the Spirit in that bond of peace. First Thessalonians says, esteem them, speaking of elders, highly in their love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. So you have to pursue it. Just finally, what will allow peace to flourish in my life? Okay? Okay? How, how could peace flourish in my life? Number one, I've already said it, prayer. Okay? Be anxious for what? Nothing. And then the word of God will help bring peace. Says in Psalm 119, 165, great peace have those who love your law. They love the law of God. If you love God's word, it's going to aid you in being at peace with him. We might say just relationally and personally. It says in Isaiah, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You've got to stay, men and women, at Grace Church in the word of God because you, his He's going to keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. No wonder Paul said, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, whatever, you know, let your mind think on those things. But secondly, a righteous life, a righteous life. It says the effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness, trust, and forever. If you want to have and be at peace, not only with one another, then a righteous life's going to help you to that end. In fact, Peter says, turn away from evil, let him do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. And the third thing is forgiveness brings peace. Thirdly, that third bullet point, forgiveness brings peace. Repay uh, no one evil for evil. If as far as possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So listen, this peace is given objectively. This peace is to be experienced subjectively. But this peace is to be pursued relationally. And may God give us that great peace as we go to the Lord's table.